Hi, this is Claudia Opper. Welcome to another episode of Audio Law, the law podcast for busy people, brought to you by Illustrated Law. If you find this podcast helpful, please head over to illustratedlaw.com and donate a dollar or two. There's a donate button right on the homepage of the website, and anything you're able to give allows us to keep on creating more helpful content like this episode that we're about to dive into. With that, let's go ahead and get started. In this episode, we'll be discussing Carnes v. Thompson, 48 Southwestern Reporter, 2nd Series, 903, from the year 1932. This case will provide a great example for transferred intent. Let's go ahead and get into the facts of the case. Defendant owned a number of farms in Jackson, Cass, and other counties in Missouri. In the spring of 1924, defendant employed plaintiff's husband to work on his 400-acre farm in Cass County. A public road ran north and south through this farm, and there were two residences on it. There was a large house located on the east side of the road, and plaintiff's husband and his family were permitted to live in it during the time plaintiff's husband was working for a defendant. There was also a smaller house on the west side of the road, unoccupied. Defendant had not employed plaintiff's husband for any definite time, but was paying him by the month. On the 1st of August, defendant ceased to employ him, and thereafter told him to vacate the house. They, however, continued to occupy the house. On November 16th, defendant instructed another man, Wilson, to move onto the farm. Wilson arrived on that day and undertook to move into the big house in which plaintiff and her husband were living, but was not allowed to do so. Wilson went away and called defendant, who came back with him to the farm. Defendant's foreman and some other men were with him. They went to the little house on the west side of the road and defendant attempted to get a window open with a pair of pliers. Plaintiff's husband had the key to the little house and sent it over by his daughter, a girl 11 years old. Defendant told her to tell her father to come over, and plaintiff and her husband did go across the road to the little house. The plaintiff's evidence, being her own testimony and that of her husband and two daughters, was that defendant came toward them almost in a run as they approached on the concrete sidewalk leading from the road to the little house. That, defendant demanded in an angry manner, of plaintiff's husband, why he did not let Wilson move in, that he came up to them and struck at plaintiff's husband with the pliers, that the pliers brushed the coat sleeve of her husband and were brought down forcibly against her hand, and that she grabbed defendant's coat collar and held him so that he could not strike her husband, which he attempted to do two or three times. Plaintiff said that she released defendant at his request and that he went back to the house took off his hat and glasses, handed them and the pliers to the man who was with him, and started for her husband again. As he came past plaintiff, she caught his coattail, held him, and called to her husband to beat it. Plaintiff said that defendant, struggling to get loose, jerked and shook her, that her husband went back across the road and told her to let go of defendant, and that she did so and went back across the road to the big house. Plaintiff's evidence as to her injuries was that her hand was bruised, swollen,
swollen and bleeding, that her wrist was strained and her shoulder and back hurt, and that she was rendered very nervous and had never fully recovered. The defendant's version, as related by him and the men who were with him, was that the first part of the encounter did not occur, and that when plaintiff and her husband approached, he did not have the pliers in his hand. He said he took off his glasses, but not his hat, and went toward them, asking plaintiff's husband why he did not let Wilson move in, that plaintiff's husband backed away with his hand in his pocket, that he thought he was going to pull a gun, that he did not notice plaintiff until she took hold of his coattail as he came along the walk, that he asked her to let loose of his coat, that she did so and went back across the road to where her husband had gone, and that he neither struck at nor hit either of them. So, what's the issue of this case? Though not explicitly stated in the court documents, we can gather an implied issue, and that is whether a person can be liable for unintentionally harming someone other than their target. Let's get into the reasoning, which is verbatim from court documents. Plaintiff's evidence unquestionably made a case for the jury. Defendant says that the evidence does not show that he at any time intended injury and harm to the plaintiff, and that he was never close enough to plaintiff's husband to strike him. However, plaintiff's evidence was sufficient to justify a finding that defendant struck at plaintiff's husband in anger with the pliers and that when he dodged the blow, plaintiff received it. If one person intentionally strikes at, throws at, or shoots at another and unintentionally strikes a third person, he is not excused on the ground that it was a mere accident, but it is an assault and battery of the third person. And there you have the reasoning. Before we get to the case holding and some key takeaways from this case, let's hear about today's episode's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Illustrated Law. Order your Illustrated Law book today on Amazon for only $15. Unlike traditional law books, Illustrated Law books have illustrations, practice questions with answers, key takeaway summaries, and so much more. It's the simple way to learn law efficiently. There are currently three illustrated law books available, and those are Constitutional Law, Torts Concepts, and Criminal Procedure, Investigation, and Justice. Make sure to check out those books on Amazon, as they will certainly help you in your law studies. Let's go ahead and wrap up this case, starting with the holding. Defendant's intention in such a case is to strike an unlawful blow, to injure some person by his act, and it is not essential that the injury be to the one intended. So, you may ask yourself, what can we really take away from that holding? What is the lesson that we can learn from this case? And I'll tell you, a main takeaway is that the defendant might have intended for the action to be applied to the husband, 
And even though that harm was suffered by the plaintiff, transferred intent allows the plaintiff to recover from harm that was meant for her husband. In the end, we see how this case, Carnes v. Thompson, is an excellent example of how transferred intent applies to torts cases. That does it for this episode of Audio Law. Thanks for tuning in. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to tell your friends about Audio Law and check out some of our other podcasts. As Audio Law is the law podcast for busy people, I hope this episode helped make your day a little less busy. Thanks for listening and see you next time.